The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. That was the first thing is that six basic structures to, to all stories. And in fact, this was borne out recently in an analytical breakdown by data scientists is that they took thousands of novels and thousands of uh, scripts and they put them into uh, an analysis. What they found is he's, Vonnegut was right and he was right 50 years ago. There are six basic stories. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that he found that was really interesting is that we're so fascinated with these structures is that a lot of times we'll, we'll experience the same basic structure repeatedly and not notice it and still fall in love with it uh, again and again. Greetings, scribes, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you prolificness, prosperity, and peace of mind. Best-selling author and award-winning social psychologist Ron Friedman spoke to me about how remarkable artists and writers reverse-engineer breakouts in his new book, Decoding Greatness. Ron's an expert on human motivation and founder of Ignite80, a consulting firm that crunches data in neuroscience, human physiology, and behavioral economics to help smart leaders build extraordinary workplaces. His latest work of nonfiction is the bestseller, Decoding Greatness, described as a game-changing approach to mastering new skills and succeeding faster. The New York Times bestselling author of Deep Work, Cal Newport, said of the book, read this book if you want to upgrade from working hard to actually producing results that matter. Accounts of Ron's research have appeared on NPR and major newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Guardian, and magazines such as Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. In this file, Ron and I discussed how copying can make you more creative or help you out of a rut. Vonnegut's six basic story structures, hidden patterns in great writing of any genre, how to avoid the uncanny valley of novelty, why you need to create a private museum of inspiration, and more. Stay calm and write on. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. Yes, we are back on The Writer Files, and I am honored today to be joined by award-winning behavioral psychologist Ron Friedman. How are you surviving today, sir? I'm doing well, Kelton. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, what uh, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Um, 
You know, I'm in Rochester, New York, and uh, if you are familiar with Rochester, New York, it tends to be gray for a good part of the year. So it is just beautiful outside. And uh, it's just, it's wonderful to just be able to get outside, take take walks, play some pickleball, you know, all the things that, that uh, uh, top performing athletes do. <laughs> pickleball, absolutely. So uh, yeah, we're here to talk about writing and the writing life and really... Um, you know, as we do kind of delve into the, the neuroscience of, of creativity, I think that aligns quite well with your latest book, um, this fantastic book, Decoding Greatness. And I want to talk more about that, but I want to talk about you um, and kind of your very interesting uh, career path to, you know, b- becoming a, a, a renowned nonfiction writer now. I want to talk all about that process, uh, how, it, how it connects to your work and it's kind of very meta, but um, yeah, talk a little bit about your background and kind of the cliff's notes of how you got here, how you became an author and, and speaker and, and motivational um, authority. Well, I appreciate you asking. So I started off in politics and uh, after spending a few years as chief of staff to a congressman, I decided to go to uh, get my degree at uh, graduate school for social psychology. So social psychology is all about Uh, the factors that influence the way we think and behave uh, external to us primarily. And uh, in getting my degree, I got my degree with the experts who Dan Pink wrote about, if if you've heard of the book Drive, and Mm -hmm. it's all about intrinsic motivation. And so those were Ed DC and Richard Ryan. I got my degree studying with them. And then I went off into the corporate world. And it was in being in the corporate world where after I'd gotten my degree, in social psychology, where I knew about all the factors that lead to motivation and creativity and top performance, I got into working in in a large organization. And I realized that all of the things that we knew were essential to top performance were being ignored by organizations. So I saw an opportunity to write a book because I'd been in the front lines actually experiencing what corporate life was like. And I had that background in psychology. And that led to my first book. It's called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And in that book, I took over a thousand academic studies and just translated them into plain English. So regardless of whether you were a CEO or just someone starting out, you had access to all the research uh, for elevating your performance and creating a great workplace. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing is that even within the best organizations, there's a range of how people perform. Some people are outstanding performers and some people are not. And so what I was curious about is what are the factors that separate those who Uh, excel from those who don't. And that led to a whole bunch of research of top performers that went into my second book, my new book now, it's called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. And that book is all about how we've been led to believe that there are really two paths to success. The first path is talent, the idea that you're born with certain inner strengths, and that the key to finding your greatness is finding the right field. The second story that we've been taught about success is that it comes from practice. The idea that Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, work hard and find the right practice regimen and eventually you will improve. But what I found in doing the research for decoding greatness is that there is a third path and it's one that's not often discussed, yet it's the path that so many top performers, regardless of whether they're writers or artists or business titans, went through to achieve at the highest levels, and that's reverse engineering. And it's something that I'm excited to talk to you about today because it is so applicable to good writing. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting, I think, and you know, you do present a lot of 
really great, great uh, stories and examples and studies, obviously, in the work that, you know, uh, kind of d- describe how great writers kind of crack this code or, or you know, you know, reverse engineer, as you put it, the great work of others. And, and it's super fascinating. I mean, I've always been fascinated kind of by remix culture and just the creative process. But talk a little bit about that piece of, you know, how, how we copy, combine, transform, and how this has kind of been something that, you know, human beings have done since the beginning of, of uh, consciousness, really in order to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So just to be clear and what I mean by reverse engineering, reverse engineering simply means studying the best in a field and then working backward to figure out how they did it. Now in Silicon Valley, it is very well known. There's a very long history of coders deconstructing winning products to learn how they're made. It's how we got the personal computer and laptops and the iPhone. But what's less understood is that reverse engineering also explains how writers like Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned their craft and how painters like Claude Monet became a groundbreaking artist and how Judd Apatow, this is one of my favorite stories in the book, how Judd Apatow became one of the most successful comedy minds of our generation. So, So studying the best in a field and then working backwards to figure out how they, those works were created turns out to be a lot more common than anyone has realized. And there's a long history of that being the way in through which artists and writers developed. Copywork is a term I'm sure you've discussed on the show before. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a process that used to be the norm. And then somewhere along the way, we grew to believe that copying made you a hack. And what's not fully appreciated, and, and this is a study that I thought was so crucial in 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 really helping me see that there was something here in this book to write about, which is that copying actually opens your eyes up to new ideas and makes you more creative. And the last thing you want to do when you're trying to create a creative work is to work in isolation, because what ends up happening is you get stuck uh, around ideas you've considered previously. You start um, feeling frustration and a sense of dread about your writing, but it's through the process of looking at what other people are doing, that you see opportunities for creating something new. And the study in particular, the one I'm referring to is this University of Tokyo study, where they had amateur artists come into the lab and produce original works. And they separated them out into two groups. And for the first group, they just created original works for three days. And the second group, they also had them create original works on the first day and the third day. But on the second day, they had them copy the work of an established artist. And the factor that they were looking to determine was who was the most creative on the third day. In other words, the group that just created original works for three days straight, or the second group, the group that paused to reproduce the work of the established artist. And they had the, the paintings rated by an objective observer. What they found was that it was the, it was the second group. It was the group that had paused to copy or the work of an established artist that ended up being more creative. And it wasn't by simply copying the work of the established artist. It was by going in new paths that no one had anticipated. And it's because taking a moment to to produce copy work, to to work on someone else's um, art and trying to reproduce it, what that does is that forces you to consider your instinctive uh, uh, decisions or choices against Mm -hmm. that of an established artist. And that process of pausing to think about what you would have done and what they did, that opens you up to considering all kinds of choices that 
weren't necessarily inherent in the art of the person you copied, uh, but again, puts you down the path of just being far more generative, generative and far more creative. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. So as you mentioned, some great writers, Jed Apatow, great screenwriter, Stephen King, you know, one of the greats. His book on writing, obviously, you can kind of get a look inside of his brain. But yeah, talk a little bit about how how writers can apply that today. I mean, I mean, you're gonna have two different types of writers, right? You're gonna have fiction, fiction, and nonfiction writers, and you you delve into quite a bit, kind of the Gladwellian structure for um, you know that's kind of changed that nonfiction uh, world. But um, yeah, talk a little bit about kind of those methods of kind of reverse engineering that that type of creativity for writers yeah i mean there are so many great examples in the book and again i'll go uh a link to the book of course and decoding greatness uh will be in the show notes there for you to to peek at but it's a it's a great uh dive into a lot of different creative minds yeah so there's so many to go into <laughs> i know <laughs> uh, so, so let's let's i'll tell you about the one that i i find just the most interesting which is uh, Kurt Vonnegut. And what Vonnegut would do is yeah. he was very intentional about this is he would turn a story into a picture and how he did it was by graphing out the protagonist's fortune over time. So if you think of a graph and if you think of the, uh, the X axis, the one on the bottom as being time from beginning to end, if you think of the Y axis from top, bottom to top, being the fortunes of the protagonist, what he would do is he would just draw a picture of are things going well for the protagonist or are they going poorly? And what he found was in doing this is he found two fascinating things. One is that the vast majority of stories uh, come down to basic six basic structures. And it's primarily 
necessarily the rags to riches, the riches to rags. And if you think of, uh, those are just two, of course, but if you think of what that means is uh, rags to riches is a rising emotional arc, like the Karate Kid. The riches to rags is a falling emotional arc, like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where things just continuously get worse and worse for the protagonist. Right. Uh, then there's Man in the Hole, which is the Wizard of Oz, which is uh, uh, Dorothy. Uh, there's a fall at the beginning, and then it leads to a rise. Uh, Icarus, which is a rise followed by a fall. Uh, Cinderella, which is a rise followed by a fall, followed by a rise. And Oedipus, which is a fall. Uh, followed by rise, followed by fall, which is probably, I think, closest to in, in modern day to Breaking Bad, if you think of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was the first thing is that six basic structures to, to all stories. And in fact, this was borne out recently in an analytical breakdown by data scientists is that they took thousands of novels and thousands of uh, scripts and they put them into uh, an analysis. What they found is he's, Vonnegut was right, and he was right 50 years ago. There are six basic stories. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that he found that was really interesting is that we're so fascinated with these structures is that a lot of times we'll, we'll experience the same basic structure repeatedly and not notice it and still fall in love with it uh, again and again. So an example of this is the comparison I, I point to in chapter one of Cinderella versus Annie which is that they're basically the same story with different characters. In both cases, you've got a character at the beginning whose, whose life is horrible, mm -hmm. followed by a rescue, followed by tragedy, followed by uh, a rescue again, and they live happily ever after. So in the case of Cinderella, it's Prince Charming uh, who finds her. And in the case of Annie, after having, and this is the movie version, it's a little bit different on the Broadway show, but in the case of Annie of Daddy Warbucks, rescuing her after she'd been essentially kidnapped by these uh, false, by these uh, people who were pretending to be her parents. That's right. And so I love that analysis because it's applicable to so many shows, movies, whatever it is you're trying to write. If you want to understand why it is that you fall in love with something, conduct this little analysis that Vonnegut suggests, just turn it into a graph. What's going on here? And, and then what that forces you to do is zoom out and appreciate the entirety of a piece instead of just studying one scene at a time or one chapter at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a great example. I'm looking at the the graphs now and um, yeah, I mean, I think if you really want to, to, to do a deep dive on that um, idea, you could look at um, McKee's uh, story where he really goes into uh, that pretty, in depth, he takes he takes his Vonnegut and just like explodes it. You know, uh, Robert McKee, the great uh, screenwriter or screenwriting instructor, I should say. But yeah, I do I do love that, and I do love the example that you present of uh, Joe Hill when he got stuck. His uh, you know, I don't know if it was his idea or his dad's idea, but he he copied Elmore Leonard's work, right? Mm -hmm. That's right, and what he he just. It's, what I love about that approach of just taking the time to do some copy uh, work is not, you know, I don't think there's a suggestion by Joe Hill or anyone else that this should be now a firm uh, um, part of your schedule and you should devote an hour to this because that can be overwhelming and it can feel like it's you're just adding another task. What, what I found fascinating about Joe Hill's story is that he did it when he was stuck. And we all have been there when there's a moment where we feel like, I don't know what's supposed to happen next. And then you, it just makes you question your humanity. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, it just, you, you feel like you're uh, um, 
just so um, it, it makes you wonder whether you're even cut out for it. And what mm-hmm. I love about Joe, the Joe Hill approach of taking the time to do some copy work is that it makes you feel productive, but it also snaps you out of it. There it you makes go. you, you, it forces you to see things differently. And then again, once you're comparing your choices against the choices of a master, now go back to your work and chances are you'll now consider options that you hadn't considered before, which will get you out of that hole. You no longer feel stuck. Now talk a little bit about kind of your own breakthrough with your own writing process. Cause I understand, you know, you, as you mentioned, have run into some frustration and some, some um, times when you didn't feel the most productive, but talk, talk about kind of your own experience with the writing process and, and, you know, what, what a productive time for you is like, what the most productive time for you is like, and, and kind of how you apply your own, um, yeah, your own wisdom to your path. Well, one of the, one of the stories I tell in the book is how I learned to write academic journal articles. And I had, I came into grad school. I didn't really have any experience writing academic journal articles. And what I had a lot of experience doing was running experiments, but in order to get your degree, one of the things you have to do is you've got to produce a lot of articles and anybody who's listening to this, who's an academic can, can appreciate is that you don't just need to write one or two. You need, this is, I mean, this is what determines your worth as an academic is how often you publish. Mm -hmm. So I got to the point where I had to write these articles and I tried and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was very frustrating. And it was, it led to a period of insomnia. Uh, And Mm -hmm. until I realized what I needed to do was, and this was, I kind of just fell into this where one morning I decided I was just going to read one, uh, a set of papers from an academic whose work I admired over and over again. And I just, I printed out a whole bunch of them. I remember the cafe I went to, I sat there with the stack of articles and I read one after the other. And what I came upon was that there was a hidden pattern in the way that he was writing. And it was, it, what it came down to was that he would start off with a startling fact. And from there he would transition to the implication of this fact in, in the broader society then he would go into raising a question, which is kind of the cliffhanger, the Gladwellian cliffhanger. And then he would present his position and then do a research review. So, you know, it's a little bit in the weeds in terms of what how an academic article is structured. But the point is, is that reading all of them in a row helped me realize that there was a pattern there. And what I ended up doing as a result of that was reverse outlining his work. Now, I don't know if reverse outlining is something you've talked about, but it's a wonderful tool. We've all heard of the, the idea for outlining, which is yeah. to bullet point what you're about to say in a piece and then working off that outline to compare whether you've executed correctly. A reverse outline is to do the opposite, which means to take a finished work, somebody else's ideally, and then work backward to figure out what their outline must have been in order to produce the piece that they did. Mm-hmm. That's what I did for those academic journal articles. And what I came away with was not just a reverse outline, but a template for how to produce an academic journal article that I could then go apply to my work. And that's the potential of all of these tools for reverse engineering. We talked about copy work. We talked about uh, Vonnegut's approach to mapping the protagonist's fortunes on a graph. Here we have a third tool, which is reverse outlining to identify what really is happening in this piece and how can I apply this to my work? And it is remarkably impactful. And I think that it's something that you can, you can use anywhere. You can use it for Mm -hmm. uh, websites. You can use it for presentations. You can use it for memos. 
You can even use it for impactful emails that you've received that you want to potentially learn from a little bit mm-hmm. more. Because so often we encounter great works and we're like, huh, that's amazing. I, I, I wish I had done that. And that's the wrong question. What we should be asking is, what can I learn from this and how do I apply it to my work? I love that. And, and I think that writers can take away some really, really impactful ideas from artists and and entrepreneurs alike, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And a great example of of that is uh, Barack Obama's story, which is uh, one that I discuss in the book, which is that he, uh, not a lot of people realize this, but he was um, not a successful politician from the, out of the gate. uh, And he actually got trounced in his first political race. And the problem, if you can believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. <laughs> and it was because he was, an, he was an academic. He was a professor who had taught law and he was used to lecturing people. And voters didn't appreciate being lectured to. And they let him know that at the ballot box where he lost by a resounding margin of more than two to one. And so he considered leaving politics until he realized what pastors were doing in churches to be as persuasive as they were. And he, he, he learned from their approach and he incorporated it into the way that he spoke. And so when he was back on the scene a few years later, he was now telling stories. He was using repetition. He was quoting the Bible. He was modulating his tone. It was all those things that he learned from churches. And so the takeaway here, I think what the story illustrates, is that you shouldn't just look at your field to understand where the to get your best ideas. Also look around at other industries and figure out what is it that they're doing that's effective and how do I apply that to my approach to stand apart from everyone else? For sure, for sure. And Barack Obama, obviously one of the greatest orators of, of our time. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. I mean, these things are all connected, right? So you're talking about storytelling and kind of the oral tradition, but then obviously, you know, his, his storytelling is what won elections and really um, inspired people. But, uh, you know, I think that's what all, all great writing does ultimately. But yeah, I think we can take away, you know, from nonfiction to the Gladwellian structure to, you know, great copywriting, as you mentioned, you know, take some notes on or, or reverse engineer. But yeah, I think, I think something that, jumped out at me was that uh from your book was the kind of that uncanny valley of creativity and novelty you know you talk some talk a little bit more about this idea of you know what we're talking about right is mimicry versus novelty and kind of what what we're going for is is what you call optimal newness right Mm -hmm. yeah so we often assume that the more original the idea the more successful it will be, but that's not what the research shows. 
as it turns out, when a product or an idea is too original, it tends to fall flat. So complete originality tends to fail, and it's because as a species, we tend to distrust the unknown. And that fear extends to the way that we interpret something that's completely new. And you see this in products all the time. So for example, the smartwatch. Today, Apple's smartwatch seems like the height of innovation. And it's an amazing gadget, but it's not an original. The first smartwatch was introduced 20 years ago and it failed miserably. <laughs> and it, what happens is that it takes audiences a while to catch on. And we see this with new shows that were ahead of their time that, you know, 10 years later, something similar catches on. And the people who were into the original show feel like, hey, wait a second. We were here uh, way, way earlier. And I'm thinking of Freaks and Geeks in particular, mm-hmm. which it's just a show that is kind of a cult classic and you can't even find it anywhere because they can't get the music rights to sign off. So you Interesting. Can't, they won't sell the DVD. It's not, it's not available anywhere. Eventually one day, I think Judd Apatow's original show, well, I think it was his original show, his first show, but mm-hmm. uh, it's an example of audiences just weren't ready for it. Um, but that isn't to suggest that mimicry or cop- outright copying, t- taking someone else's formula wholesale is the approach either. Because what ends up happening when you just copy someone else's work is that it feels derivative, and rightly so. And the other concern that you should have if you're considering copying, which I'm sure no one else is uh, on this podcast, it it certainly isn't the idea behind Decoding Greatness, is uh, that when you do copy other people's work, what ends up happening is not only do you uh, fall short because it's derivative, but also because audiences' expectations have shifted. So the moment that you have a particular formula just explode and do really, really well, all of these people who are late to the game uh, no longer achieve even a fraction of the success that the original work did. And it's because now audiences have moved on. They need something. They need a, le- a certain level of surprise in order to for it to grab their attention. And so in Decoding Greatness, what I talk about is research out of Harvard that looks at what is the right amount of creativity that you should aim for. And there's a study that that was done on how grants receive their funding. And what they did in the study was to determine the level of creativity that went into the grant to determine which was the ideal amount of creativity in order to win the grant, to get get funding out of places like the NIH and so forth. And what they found was it's the studies that had just a very small dose of novelty that were most likely to be recommended for funding. Hmm. Studies that had no novelty did not get recommended, and neither did the ones that had a ton of novelty. And so what I talk about uh, in, in the book is this formula that was delivered by Don Draper in uh, the show Mad Men. He talks, about <laughs> it. he talks about it being derivative with a twist. And that really is, it seems, based on the research, what you want to aim for is you want a proven formula and you want to add your unique twist to it so that it does feel a little bit original, but you don't want to go for absolute originality because chances are you won't be successful. I love that. Yeah. Mad Men, one of the truly great (laughs) TV shows of all time, I think. And uh, yeah, there's something really, really fascinating about that derivative with a twist idea, but of course you delve into that and and uh, yeah, congratulations on the work. I appreciate it. And just one last point that I would make on that derivative uh, with a twist is that what it tells us is that all that pressure we put on ourselves as writers to be a complete original, not only is that unnecessary, but it's actually counterproductive. Because if you actually are a complete original, you're going to fail. So don't even bother putting that pressure on yourself. Just find 
what work, what you really enjoy, figure out what, why it's working, and then find a way to make it just slightly original. And chances are you will be embraced a lot quicker than if you had gone the opposite direction. And certainly more than if you hadn't bothered to figure out why it's working in the first place. That's great advice. Yeah, I think um, obviously before we wrap up, we will drop links to the book. And then you have uh, a home base there where you have uh, your consulting firm, right? Want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I have a company called Ignite 80. And when Ignite 80, the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so the mission of Ignite 80 is to teach leaders science-based strategies for helping people succeed faster so that they can develop better workplaces. And so my website is Ignite, that, the website for that company is Ignite80.com, Ignite and the number 80. Yeah. And then um, my website is ronfriedmanphd.com where you can find my articles and download all kinds of tools and tips and, and ebooks. And then if you're interested in learning more about decoding greatness, the best place to go is decodinggreatnessbook.com where you can get a free course on reverse engineering with a pre-purchase of the book. Perfect. I love it. Yeah. Do you want to wrap up with just kind of uh, your advice to any aspiring writers out there? And, and I think you covered it, but um, you know, pressure, that pressure that you're talking about is counterintuitive, but any other, any other advice to writers on just how to, how to keep going? <laughs> You know, I, 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 I do all those things like consulting and speaking, but I really feel like I'm a writer at heart. I do all the, those other things in order to be able to write. So this community is very near and dear to my heart. And if there's one tip that I can offer that we haven't already covered, it's to collect the, to start a collection of the things that resonate for you. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, we think about collections, we think about physical objects like artwork or wine or stamps, but the be- what the best writers do, I think, is that they collect works that appeal to them on a level that is just very memorable. And that can mean collecting books, but it also can mean collecting words, right? So having a directory of words that you mm-hmm. have found to be uh, impactful when you read a book. Like, for example, I will circle certain words as I'm reading that just spark an emotional reaction for me. And then I'll move them over to a Google Doc of powerful words. You could do the same thing for headlines. You could do the same thing for transitions. All of these things that you encounter that move you, find a place to put them in that you can revisit because it's a little bit like creating a private museum that you can then visit to uh, inspire yourself and um, revisit the greats over and over again. And I just feel like we so much pressure is put on us by ourselves often to find things that are impactful or create fr- from out of nowhere. And I just, I don't know that that is the best way to think about creativity. I think creativity comes from combining the best of what you encounter. And if you can do that and you can put in the time, then I think when you sit down to create something new, it won't feel quite as daunting. Ron, thanks so much for taking the time and um, congrats on um, all of your successes and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Hopefully you can come back again and wrap with us more about um, all things creativity, productivity, and uh, neuroscience at another time. Would love it, Kelton. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question 
and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.